You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. I did not plan, as Nathan mentioned, we're going to talk a little bit about Nepal. I did not plan to go to Nepal. I did not. That was not on my bucket list, something that I wanted to do, you know, um, I truthfully, at one point in my ministry life, I spent about uh, eight, nine years doing young adult ministry, and I loved it. I did a bunch of short-term mission stuff at that time. It kind of satisfied the passion that I had in my heart for that, and uh, did so much of it, it kind of just wore that out. So I had no desire to go to Nepal, and I'm just being really honest with you, I did not want to go to Nepal, Okay. But I found out that there was a group going from Lexington and they invited me because of our involvement with Adopt-A-Verse and the Issachar Initiative. And then if Sherry Hurley ever gets after you about anything and says, you should pray about that. Well, I agreed to pray about it, which was the beginning of the end for me, okay? <clears throat> so I was starting to pray and I started to see these, these kind of points of uh, directing me to do this, and it started to mount up a little bit. So finally, I said to Steve one day, Steve Smith, our executive minister here, I said, Steve, I want to sit down with uh, Jeff Raley, who's our chairman of our elders, and if he's okay with this, then I'm going to go, because I feel like God's leading me to do that. But if he has any reservation at all, I'm not going, okay? Even the slightest reservation, I'm not going. And he said, okay, that sounds like a plan. So We met with Jeff, didn't tell him what it was about, and kind of explained all this to him. And this is Jeff's response. And Jeff's kind of a a bit of a country boy, though he's a very successful man. He said this, he goes, Monty, I just think that is awesome. I think you have got to do that. And I was like, yeah, God's kind of subtle, isn't he, sometimes? So our journey started on February the 25th. That was a Saturday morning, 4.30 at uh, Bluegrass Airport, and the whole thing started by rerouting our flights to Nepal because the flight we were to take from Lexington to Philadelphia got canceled the night before because of a bunch of thunderstorms. And so we flew to Chicago instead, and then from there to a place called Abu Dhabi, which is in the United Arab Emirates, which is a a very uh, prominent uh, Arab country there in the Middle East. And then from Abu Dhabi, we flew to Kathmandu. Kathmandu is right here in the center of Nepal, and it's the capital, and it's pretty westernized. There's a lot of people that go to Kathmandu because they want to they hike the uh, Himalayan mountains. They call them trekkers. So we went there, and we got, uh, after about uh, two calendar days of travel, we got there on Sunday night. We got a good night's sleep, and the next morning we got up and headed to Hatata, where we were going to be based for the, the lion's share of our time in Nepal. Few people have cars in Nepal. Most people travel by mass transit or they have one of these. They have a bike and you'll see a lot of people riding bikes. They should be the healthiest country on the planet. If you're really blessed, you'll have one of these, a motorcycle or a scooter. And uh, we saw thousands and thousands of motorcycles. And it's amazing how many people you can get on one motorcycle. You can get four or five people on a motorcycle. Only by law, the, the driver has to have a helmet. Everybody else can be an organ donor, apparently. So our team rented two Jeeps, 
and we, uh, we started the trek over the mountains to Hatada. This is, the, uh, this is what the Jeeps look like, and that's me right there. Don't I look rugged? Yeah, I do, don't I? I? Our driver didn't speak any English, so it was six and a half hours with, you know, just smiling a lot at each other, which, you know, as dudes, I don't I didn't like that. I, I, uh, to say that driving is a challenge in uh, Nepal is a monumental understatement. It's crazy. It's just absolutely crazy. There are, you, you can see, we're, they drive on the left side, the British style of driving, and so we're passing on the right side, but there really is almost no right side. In fact, if you look at the road, there's almost no road there. And there are no, there are no stoplights, there are no stop signs, there are no speed limits, there are no traffic rules. There's just this horn language that, you know, if, if they beep real fast, it means I'm passing you. If they beep real long, it means I'm going to run you over, you know. You see a little guy on a rickshaw, you know, pedaling his brains out, and here comes this big dump truck, and he's laying on the horn. What's the guy supposed to do, you know? There are no laws there. And going over the mountain, uh, I took a little bit of video. We, tr- we crossed over two of the two mountains in order to get to Hatata. Um, normally, uh, it takes about four and a half hours to get there, five hours. It took us six and a half hours. You can see the road snaking down here. You can see that. Uh, I sent this video back to my wife and she was keeping uh, my family and Phil's family all kind of abreast of what's going on. And um, there are no guardrails or anything like that. And I sent this and the next day I got an email from man. She said, I'm not sending that to your mom. Okay. (laughs) She will totally freak out. My mom would freak out. She was nervous the whole time I was gone. That's her spiritual gift, I think. She thinks is worrying, but you get the idea. Uh, there, aren't, there, was, there was a section of this road that had guardrails. It was about 300 feet, or 300 yards, I mean, of guardrail, and that was it. We got stuck because of uh, road construction. This was part of it. Most of it was way up here, way beyond that turn. They were, they were doing something on the road that blocked it for an hour. Then we were able to go on. We got stopped at another place for another hour or so. Our hosts were a mission couple there, Babu and Sabatri. Babu and Sabatri met in Bible college in the country of India. Babu is from India. He's from Kerala, the southern part of India. Uh, Sabatri is actually from a Christian family in Nepal. And uh, she convinced Babu to go back to Nepal with her. And they, uh, they decided that they were going to, uh, to minister to the Nepalese people. They have an orphanage there. They run a Bible school, which would be very similar to what we would call a Bible college. And they also lead a church. And they are some of the leading uh, movers and shakers with regard to church planting in the southern part of Nepal. We ate most of our meals in their home, but they had by far something even greater than food. They had the best Wi-Fi in all of Nepal, okay, which, which excuse me, helped us to stay connected back home, and that was, really, that was really helpful. One of our main purposes for going to Nepal was to lead a pastor's conference, uh, leader's conference there, and that started on Tuesday morning and would run through Friday. It was going to be held at the Bible school there in Hatata. And my first session, I took uh, a selfie 
with uh, the entire group. And just leave this picture up here for a minute, okay? This, I asked them, you can tell, there's a lot of young faces in here. And you'll notice all women on one side and all men on the other. That's just a cultural thing. On Sunday, I preached in the same hall and it was flipped. The women were over here and the men were over here. I don't know why, but it was just that way. They never sit together. It's kind of wild, isn't it? But they're young, and I ask them, how many of you know what a selfie is? Eighty percent of them said, we know what a selfie is, yeah. I said, would you like to be in one? They said, yeah, yeah. So I thought this guy right here was giving me the finger, but he's not. He's just got one finger up like that. I don't know why he was doing that. But uh, anyway, it was great. I want you to pay attention to these two girls right here, because we didn't know them, all right? We were expecting uh, to meet them later. These are two of our translators... Uh, for the, the Adoptiverse project. We had no idea they were there. They were there the whole time. In fact, when I was doing this, uh, putting this uh, PowerPoint together a couple weeks ago for our staff, um, I, I pulled this picture up. I'd been saving it. And I looked and I said, I can't believe it. They were right there in the front row. We didn't even know it. We'd find out at the end that they were there. I'll tell you about that in just a second. We were anticipating somewhere around 150 to 160 people by uh, Wednesday, the second day of the conference. Uh, we had close to 200 people showed up. And they were, these, these young people had passion. I'd say about 80% of them are under 30 years of age. They are passionate for Jesus. And it was very invigorating and exciting for me. As I mentioned, these two translators uh, were there at... At the end of the Friday session, they had fed, they were feeding all the participants, and somebody came in and said, hey, two of your translators are here. And we said, what? And little did we know, Phil and I had just been sitting by him in one of the last sessions. We were sitting right next to him. But they came, and we got our picture taken with them, and uh, we would see them in a couple of days. But it was really kind of cool. They don't speak much English, so we just smile a lot at each other, you know. But we were grateful that they were there. I mentioned Phil. This was Phil Hurley. Phil and Sherry Hurley lead our missions team here. And Phil was my roommate while we were there. And uh, Phil is an amazing guy. Amen. He is an amazing guy. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. You got some, you got some, you got some people love you, man. That's awesome. Uh, Phil, Phil was a little nervous, though, about teaching at a pastor's conference because, you know, he's a layperson and he was kind of questioning his own skill and ability and all that. And I said, you'll be fine. We talked a little bit about it ahead of time. He got up and spoke and uh, Sabatri was the translator that day. She did a lot of the translating for us. He did a great job. I was so proud of him. He, did, he really did. He did a great job. He was talking about... He was teaching the Nepali people how important it is to mobilize their churches to do mission work. Now think about that. And uh, I think it resonated with them. We'll see. At the end of the uh, conference, we, we kind of gave the challenge to the people who participated. Now remember, there's just around 200 people there. We asked, how many of you would take the pledge to go in the next year to plant a church? 20 people came forward. And we prayed over them and said they would go and plant a church in the next year. And then we asked another question. We said, you know, there are a number of people groups that don't know anything about Jesus. They're totally unengaged. How many of you in here would be willing to go and start building bridges to relational bridges to the uh, unreached people groups? And 30 people came and said, 
I will do that. Um, we, were, we were deeply moved by that. That was a powerful statement. And it gives us hope. It gives us hope. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twelve, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. There are very few Christians in Nepal. In fact, it's less than one and a half percent in the national population. But there is a hunger for truth there. And the Christians that are there, they are bold and they are courageous. The kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing in the country of Nepal. And we can partner with them. And maybe the most important thing that we can do, and that is to pray for them. Well, our team split up then after the conference. And on Saturday morning, we went to four different churches. Saturday is the day of worship there. With less than one and a half percent of the people in the country of Nepal being Christians, they don't have a lot of clout to influence which day is going to be the day of worship. So they worship on Saturday. And we went to four different churches. And I was asked by Babu to preach at the church where he normally preaches, which is there on the Bible school campus. And it was a, it was a great privilege for all of us. Then on Sunday, March the 5th, we headed south, further south from Hatata, towards the Indian border, the country of India. I was riding a car alone with a Nepali Christian who has a very limited English vocabulary. And we had a two-hour drive. I had no idea what we were going to talk about. And it was really, it was a lot of smiling again. You know, hey, it was good to see you. I did meet this Hindu priest. And he came up to me in one of these villages. And he came up to me and he said, good morning. And I was like, oh man, you speak English. This is awesome. I said, I've been looking for so forward to finding somebody who could speak English to me and tell me a little bit about what's going on. I said, man, it's so great to meet you. And he goes, good morning. (laughs) That's all he knew. That's all he knew. So English, you know, we're limited in, in our ability to communicate. So this guy and I were driving along and I wasn't sure what we'd have to talk about, but on the way we passed the Parsa Wildlife Reserve where we found something that we both understood. And I want to show you this. Monkeys are wild there. And the preserve was full of monkeys. And so I wanted to get a picture of them and he stopped. So I just uh, ran my video camera and, uh, And they came right up. And the whole time, my driver is laughing. He's just laughing. He thinks it's so funny. I'm talking to the monkeys. They're actually responding to me. I said, hey, you guys probably should get out of the road because you're going to get run over. And they did. They started, they ran away. It was really funny. We laughed and laughed. Our team visited two villages in the plains area. That's the farmland. That's the southern portion of Nepal. Most people know Nepal as the home of Mount Everest and the Himalayan mountains. That's the northern portion of the country. The southern part actually is a plain. It's really flat. It looks a lot like the heartland of our country. The villages there consisted dirt roads surrounded by primitive houses. Much much of them look just like this. Most of the buildings are mud walls and cement tiled roofs. Those are cement tiles. We went to this particular uh, village because Go International, who was the, te- the organization that coordinated this team, had dug three wells, and this was one of them. They were, they were digging wells to provide clean water. We've talked a lot about that around here, how vitally important clean water is for the health of a, of a village, of a family. 
A lot of people don't have access to it there. But these wells go 130 feet down, and that is, that is well water that's very, very safe for them to drink. When we arrived, quite a few people came from the village. They just came out to greet us, you know, two jeeps full of white people showing up. They, that draws a crowd. And so we uh, were pretty, we were pretty popular, you know, it was just like normal. And uh, yeah, we're the cool kids, right? And one of these uh, people that came up to us was a 10-year-old girl. Uh, She was very friendly. We didn't realize it at the time, but Uh, We'd find out later she was actually the only Christian in her family. Her family is Hindu. She's the only Christian in her family. We started walking around the village and we started uh, meeting people. We started learning about the people there. Our rock kids, the kids that work in, uh, that attend church in the rock area, it's our elementary ministry upstairs. They sponsored 12 of these verses, and they did it on their own, uh, with their own money. It, was, it had to be money they earned or money that was given to them as a gift. They could not go to their parents and say, I need money for this. They had to earn it. And so they put together $35 a verse. They did 12 verses, which is amazing. And Carolyn had said to me, uh, yeah, you can applaud that. Carolyn, uh, I promised Carolyn I would bring back pictures of kids from Nepal so that our kids could see the faces of kids that they actually translated the Bible. They sacrificed so that the Bible could be translated in the language for those kids. And so we were in this village where the Taru people live, and these were some of the people we were actually um, are going to benefit from the translation. And so I, got, I saw these two elementary age girls uh, brightly dressed, real cute girls, and I thought, I'm going to take a picture. But by the time I got my phone out and got it to camera mode, they had run off, okay? And so I was trying to get their picture, and, as, and then all of a sudden, I heard this Nepali voice behind me start yelling. It was a guy, and I turned to look, and I wasn't sure why he was yelling, okay? I could tell he had just come in from the fields, it was the middle of the day, and I could tell because he had a huge knife, Okay? Now, I'm not positive. He's, I'm thinking initially he's not happy with me because I was trying to take a picture of a couple of the village kids, right? But I quickly became aware that that wasn't the problem. He was upset at them for not posing for my picture. So he yells at them and they come back and then he poses them and then he looks at me and he goes... <laughs> it's funny. And this is the picture I got. Aren't they adorable? Yeah, now I show them their picture. Now it's on like Donkey Kong. Everybody wants their picture taken. So you take a look at some of these kids here that we took their pictures. After showing all these pictures, all these kids, and the children in Nepal like children everywhere. They're, they're mischievous, they're energetic, they're passionate, they're full of smiles, they're a lot of joy. I mean, they, they don't have much, but there's still smiles on their faces. They were excited to see their picture. And then this happened. This guy, this guy comes up to me right here and he points, he points at my camera and then he goes, 
you know, take my picture, right? So there was a woman standing near him, and I said, is that your wife? Now, I said that in English like anybody. They speak Taru. They don't even speak Nepali. When we talk to them, we have to speak it in English. Somebody translates it into Nepali so that somebody else can translate it into Taru. So I said, is that your wife? Like somebody's going to understand, right? And somebody goes, no. And they go, this is over here, over here. And so they bring this woman. I don't know. I probably I have the gift of you know, miraculous tongues or something. I don't know. Because they understood me for some reason. And then, so this lady came up and I took their picture and it reminded me of the, uh, you know, the painting American Gothic. Have you ever seen that? It's the Heartland shot of two uh, people. And I thought, this is perfect. This is Nepali Gothic right there. That is a perfect picture, not because I took it, but because it captures the reality of the people that we were translating the Bible into their language for. And if you look at their eyes, you can tell. These people do want to know the truth. And there is a deadness in a lot of them because they don't know it. It reminds me that everybody wants to be included. That guy's saying, take my picture, not just for the kids, but take my picture. And I showed him their picture and they smiled. They, I mean, they really were <laughs> blessed. And they didn't get a copy of it. I left and took it with me. But people always want to be included. They want to be valued, don't they? That's, a, that's because people are important. They were important to Jesus. They should be important to us. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 18. He says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier than the one sh- that the one sheep He is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Everyone wants to be valued. They want to be wanted. Nobody wants wants to be left out. No matter where a person lives, they want to believe that they matter. You want to feel that way. I want to feel that way. They definitely want to feel that way too. Here's the truth. Everyone is important to Jesus, everyone. Everyone is valued because Jesus has placed a huge value on them. He gave his life on the cross for every single person. You will never lay eyes on a person who Jesus didn't die for. And it was true there. We all respond, to, we all respond well when we're valued, don't we? It's like watering flowers. They just... They, they thrive in that moment. And we do the same. I could tell this Taru man was blessed by simply taking his picture and he and his wife were blessed by just getting to see it. Who around you could use a reminder that they matter to God? Who around you could use a reminder that they matter to you? Why not take some action today? Maybe this week. Do something. Maybe it's just to write a note and say, hey, I just wanted to tell you that you matter to me. You bless my life. Maybe you need to make a pie for them, okay? Or something like, listen, I've been under the weather a lot. I could use a pie, you know? If you need, to, if you need somebody to take a pie to, I'm kidding. Please don't bring me a pie. My wife says, you need to lose some weight, so don't bring me pies. But look around and see, are there people in your world who need to be reminded that they matter? They need to be reminded that they matter. 
One of the important facts about this village that we visited, the first village that we visited, was that the road that took us into that village divided the village into, ha- into two halves. We didn't know it at the time, but the, the people on the right side of the village were Taru people. Those were the people we were actually translating the gospel for. The people on the left side, though, they told us are called untouchables. Untouchables? They said, yeah, they're untouchables. The people on that side of the road were considered impure. And that was troubling to our team. It bothered us. Nepal has a caste system. The caste system value, places value on people groups. And this part of the village, the left side of the road, had been branded as an impure caste. You remember that 10-year-old girl who I told you about who was the only Christian in her family? She came from the left side of the road. You see it. These are, this is how they break it down. The untouchables. These are people who are considered impure. These people are farmers and laborers. These are merchants, traders, and artisans. These are the rulers and warriors. And these are the priests and scholars. I have to believe that this system was designed by somebody who was probably a priest or a scholar. You know? Where would you fit on that if we had a caste system? And you know, sometimes I think we do cast people in certain categories, don't we? Some we consider untouchable as well. That little girl was an untouchable, as well as this little guy. How adorable is that? And yet he's from that side of the road. Not that side, that side. The interesting thing about it is if a person goes into the left side of the road to minister, to plant a church, to reach out and share the gospel with that part of the village, they come out of that side of the road and the village now recognizes them as untouchable. They're no longer able to go to the other side of the village because the people consider them impure now. There are ministers and church planters who are preparing at the Bible school right now to go to the left side of the road. And they know what that means. They know that they're no longer going to be accepted in any other caste except the untouchables caste. But they're doing it because all people matter to God, even the people on the left side of the road. Well, for three days, our team spent our time visiting seven different villages that have either house churches or they're being uh, designated by four church planters to come in to, and to begin working there. These are primitive villages, but the people are very receptive. They're not stupid. They have a hunger to know the truth. Most of the villages we visited are made up of Taru people, as I mentioned. These are the people we're doing the adoptive verse to translate the Gospel of John for. And it was so cool for Phil and I to get to actually see people who will benefit from the gospel once it's translated into their language. Among these remote villages, we met this lady who had previously been a Hindu uh, priest or a Hindu uh, worship leader. She's probably in her late 60s, early 70s. She, had, she told us her story that she had a chronic health problem that had led her to visit the local witch doctor three or four different times, but he was not able to help her. And then somewhere along the line, someone had told her that uh, Jesus was someone who could help her. And so she called out on the na- to the name of Jesus, and she got relief from her health problems. 
We're not really sure what that was all about. But it was so moving to her that she gave her life to Jesus. She became the first Christian in her village. And she now leads worship in her house church. What she's doing right here in this picture is she's sitting there. She's, she's singing for us a worship song. One of the guys said he recognized the song. I didn't recognize it. But it was really moving. How God can take a person who's in, in darkness and lead them into light. He can take them from death to life. And that's what he did with this woman. But probably the reason that I'm standing here today telling you all of this, everything to this point has really been secondary to what happened to Phil and I on Monday, March the 6th. I've been in ministry over 30 years, and I've been very privileged to work in two great churches during that time. But probably the most incredible thing that I've ever experienced in ministry happened on that Monday. Phil and I were picked up by this young man. His name is Cassidon. And he and a driver had driven two hours to pick us up. And then we drove two hours with him back to Baharatpur. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But Baharatpur is clear over here in the western part of Nepal. We drove from Hatata all the way. It just took two hours. The roads were actually pretty decent. We got there. And we were, we were going there to meet the translators who were translating the Gospel of John. The code name for this project is Wanchi. We've talked about it a lot here. There are five Taru dialects, five different dialects. They're similar in, some, in nature, but they're different. And they're targeting each one of those to be translated into those specific, the Gospel to be translated into those dialects. The dialect that our team, this team was translating is called Chitwan Taru. It, it focuses on a region in Nepal called the Chitwan region. The team is led by a young man by the name of Ram Mahan. He's originally from India. And this is Ram Mahan right here. The guy on the end actually flew down from Kathmandu. He's in charge of all the translation in Nepal. And uh, this was so important to them that he actually flew from Kathmandu, was down with us for probably four or five hours, and then flew back to Kathmandu in the same day. They took us, uh, they explained to us that most of the team members are all Taru people. That's, they speak these dialects. So this is Kassadon, and these are our two translators. They are actually the ones doing the translation. And then Ram Mahan will oversee that, and then they have people coming from the uh, Seed Corporation, which we worked with on Adoptiverse, to come in and check the status and the quality of the translation. It is one of the most arduous processes I've ever seen. And we think about it, it has to be, because they have to get it right. They have to get it right. It was fascinating to hear how they do this. Then they gave us a tour of their facility. And then they gave us copies of the translation of the Gospel of Luke in Chitwan Taru. It's almost 98% completed. They, they explained to us that they translate the Gospel of Luke first because the Jesus film uses the Luke narrative of the story of Jesus. And so they, they translate the... Uh, 
the Jesus film into the language and then they'll translate the uh, Gospel of Luke so they can go in and start building churches, evangelizing regions even before they have the entire Bible together. It's pretty fascinating. But we held copies. We have copies of the Chitwan Taru copy of Luke. I asked uh, Ram Mahan, I said, what book are you translating right now? And he said to me, he said, oh, we're working on the Gospel of John. And I I thought, that is so cool. Here we are. We came. We've been funding this project, and they're actually working on it while we're there. I said, could I see what the Gospel of John looks like in Chitwan Taru? And he showed us, and this is what he showed us. And you can see how awesome that is. I know, it didn't mean anything to me either. I said, I said what's the language? Where is it? That? And he said, it's this. This is the... Uh, Chitwan Taru over here. And you can see at the top, you probably can't read it from where you are, but it says John eleven twenty seven, And that's the verse that they were actually working on that day when we were there. You saw the picture of Cassadon with the whiteboard and there was writing on it. Those were, that, that was John eleven twenty seven on the board. There were three renderings of it by the three different translators and they were making their case as to which one was the best translation. They do that. It's part of the process. This really moved me. I wanted to know, well, what, what is John eleven twenty seven? Well, John 11 is where Lazarus has died and Jesus comes and he's talking with Mary. And Mary and Martha, excuse me, and Martha's response to Jesus was this before 27. She says, I know he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. In the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And then John eleven twenty seven, 27, Martha's response. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. There's no doubt in my mind that God chose that verse to be that on that day for, for Phil and I. That's the message for Nepal. The Messiah, the Son of God who's come into the world. He's for them. He's for them. It was one of the most awesome moments of my life. When I got home, I couldn't wait to find out who was it that sponsored that verse. It was one of our high school girls, Shelby Sexton. Her dad's one of our elders. I was so excited to, to see. That's who did it. To know that we were funding, funding the work for a people who had, we had just visited who are living in darkness and who desperately need Jesus. The next morning, then I got an email that the Adoptiverse project was fully sponsored. Couldn't believe the timing of it. It was amazing. It was just amazing. In Kathmandu, they have the Center, Central Bureau of Statistics which reports the most recent census, which was 2011 for Nepal. It tells us that 81.3% of the people in Nepal are Hindus. 9% are Buddhists. 4.5% are Muslim. And 1.42% are Christian. And the remaining percentage is 3.9% roughly. They have no religion or there's a whole host of other religions that make up that remaining percentage. But Hinduism is the dominant force, spiritually speaking, Hinduism worships one supreme reality, which manifests itself in more than two million gods and goddesses. 
These gods and goddesses are represented by shrines or they, that dot the entire countryside all over every city. Everywhere you go, you'll see these shrines dedicated to one or more of these gods. We would probably call them idols. We had a driver who drove us back from Hatata to Kathmandu. And he had pictures all across his dashboard, all across different parts of his dashboard, as well as this, this idol. But he also had pictures all the way across his, the headboard. There were, I don't know how many pictures of different gods or goddesses. Everywhere you went, the practice of Hinduism was not far away. The practice of Hinduism is so far removed from the truth that so much of this nation lives immersed in spiritual darkness. The praise, the praise that we need to live today is that there are people, thank God, men and women who are shining the light of the gospel in the country of Nepal. The Bible's being translated into their heart languages, the languages that only the Nepali people speak. Why is that important? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about the Bible. He said, A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Because the more we use that book, the more it changes who we are. And it, and, it, and it makes us more like Christ. It makes us understand the purposes of God better. The Bible has the power to speak to the soul of a man or a woman. Those words come from God and they have a transformational authority. Blaise Pascal, one of my favorite quotes, said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus. We were created to have a relationship with God, but sin separated us from a sinless God. But through the sacrifice of Jesus, we can restore our relationship with him. And that's why the Bible is so important, because it tells that story of Jesus' redemptive life the sacrifice that he gave, and that's called grace. And if you don't have it, you need it in your life. But I can tell you, they desperately need it in Nepal. Let me close with this. Nepal, as I mentioned, is probably best known as the country of Mount Everest. And before we left, four of us took a charter and went up and and saw, we flew by uh, Mount Everest. Somebody said, did you climb Everest? No, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Trust me, that sounds like work, and I am not doing that. But this is Everest. It's the highest point on the planet, right there. And I got about 50 pictures of the same shot, you know, because I was in the airplane the whole time, just taking shots and video. It's, it's a beautiful part of Nepal. Everest is powerfully majestic, and it's part of the beauty of that country. And there's beauty everywhere in Nepal. You see it everywhere you go. And there's so many ways that Nepal has, you know, a way of just brightening your, your life. But the splendid colors of the clothing that the women wear, and most all of them dress in traditional garb. The bright smiles of the children, 
you never get over. This little girl adopted Phil as her grandfather, I think. But make no mistake, as beautiful as that country can be, Nepal is a nation that is desperately in need of Jesus. Hinduism has cast this dark shadow that has tried to keep the light of the gospel from shining for a very long time. But God is moving there. He is moving forcefully. And we have a tremendous opportunity to help them. When I met with the translators, one thing I failed to mention to you, because I saved it for this moment, they asked if I would pray for them. And Phil and I, had, we wanted to pray for them. I said, absolutely. And then they asked me a very strange request. They asked if I would allow them to record my prayer. I said, why, why would you want to do that? I mean, I'm thinking, I would have worked on it, <laughs> you know, if I knew you were going to record it. I said, why would you want to do that? And they said, so we can listen to it again and again and again. They are on the front lines and they are counting on our prayers. May not mean a whole lot to us, but it means everything to them. So I want to ask you if you would join me in praying in the days and weeks and months to come, maybe for the next three years as the church planners are in there, that we would pray every day for these three things, that God would move. First, that he would bring a harvest to the country of Nepal. Think about this. God could move and he could awaken people who are living in darkness so that they see their need for Jesus. Even if they don't know what it is that they need, they just see they have a need for Jesus. And then pray, secondly, for the church planners. There is a wave of church planners that are moving into Nepal over the next three years. They're going to be there. That God would give them favor, that he would bless them as they go to plant churches. And then thirdly, that you and I would pray for these Bible translators. And we would pray for them to translate the Bible accurately, but quickly. Because there is an urgency to this. I want to ask you to join me in prayer in that. You see, time is short. It really is. The sun is going down on this mission. Paul or Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Time is running out. And they're counting on us to pray and ask God to move. So let's do that together as we close. Lord, thank you for the time to remember a powerful moment in my life. I know the words that I use are probably wholly inadequate in trying to communicate this, uh, this experience to my church family. And yet, God, I pray that they could catch a glimpse of what you're doing there and what the potential is that you could do there. Lord, we pray that you would bring a harvest, a great harvest out of Nepal. Just as we pray for Hamburg, we pray, God, that you would move there and awaken those who are completely deceived by the darkness that they're surrounded by. But they would come, become aware of a need that they have for you. Lord, we pray for the church planners, that you would give them discernment and wisdom. And I pray for a person of peace who they could meet as they go into those different uh, communities, those villages to plant churches, someone who would give them credibility and status in that community. Lord, may they be fruitful in their efforts. And Lord, we pray for the translators that you would give them oh, faith and confidence in you to give them the right words. Lord, that they would 
they would get this this right and they would do it as quickly as possible. Lord, we thank you and praise you for what you will do in Nepal. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, it would be a mistake to not offer you the opportunity of what we traveled halfway around the world to offer to some people we didn't even know and don't speak their language. But I do understand the language of this culture. And if you've never taken that step to make Jesus the Lord of your life, I'm going to be right down here. I'd love to talk to you about that. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. Um, Will you come if you have a decision? Let's stand together and worship him. Thank you.